You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. Father, we thank you for uh, what we've learned so far about covenant and about the story that you're telling through your word. I pray that you would continue to teach us this morning as we look at the new covenant in light of your previous covenants. Father, I pray that you would help us to clearly understand that your plan of salvation has been the same from the beginning, that you're not a God who changes his mind, who, who adjusts his plans, uh, that you had a plan in place before you ever began anything. And Father, I pray that we would continue to see that through the flow of covenants in Scripture. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I didn't have any student notes this morning because uh, we ran out of ink at the house. And so, um, Ben, if you could order me some black ink. I thought we had black ink. All we had was colored ink, multiple things of colored ink. So, um, yeah, we'll get that fixed for next week, um, and we'll have student notes. So if you've got something that you want to jot some things down on, you can. Um, what, I, what I want us to look at today, we, we wrapped up looking at Old Testament covenants last week, moving into New Covenant discussion this week. I want us to highlight and emphasize things that are the same in the New Covenant versus the old covenants in the Old Testament, specifically in, in the way of salvation. So I want us to see how salvation works in the Old Testament, how it continues to work the same in the New Testament. I think it's important for us to realize that because I think it's important for us to, uh, to see that the, the, the way that we're claiming salvation, the way that we're hoping in our salvation is consistent with how Old Testament saints were doing it as well. And I think it provides assurance to us that we're not being fed a new way of salvation that's different than how God has worked previously with man, that God has always worked the same way with man for salvation. He will continue to work the same way with man into the future until Christ comes back. And so we want to see how that plan of salvation fits consistently through all these covenants uh, into the new covenant. So just as a way of review, somebody give me a quick definition of what the covenant of redemption is. We've We've talked about these covenants. Let's see what you remember. Covenant of redemption. What's the covenant of redemption? If we're talking about that specific covenant, what are we talking about? Okay, it's the, it's the plan that the Trinity made before creation, and what specifically is that plan? Okay, but, but what does that look like? The plan was to through through Christ. Okay, so if we're talking covenant of redemption, we're saying that the Trinity planned before the foundation of the world that Christ was going to be the sacrifice for man's sins, that God was going to save man through the work of Christ, applied through the work of the Holy Spirit. Okay, so this plan was in place before Adam and Eve were, were brought into being. It was in place before Adam and Eve sinned. So this was always the plan, always the plan. If we're talking covenant of works, what do we mean by covenant of works? What's that covenant deal with? What's that covenant promise? Good. So there was expectations placed on Adam and Eve, uh, given to Adam in the garden, that if they, if they upheld their, their end of the covenant, if they followed through in obedience, they would receive eternal life. 
that the, the curse for breaking the covenant of works is that they would get death and their descendants would get death. And so uh, the only time, the only time in, in the history of our world that salvation was based on our works would have been in the covenant of works. Now, we know that Adam was never going to obey because the plan was in place through the covenant of redemption that, that Christ was coming, that he was going to be the slain lamb. But in the covenant of works, the promise to Adam was, if you're obedient, you will receive life. And if you're disobedient, you will receive death. Now, we speculated a little bit because Scripture doesn't really present the alternative of what if Adam was obedient. But the implication was if he ate the tree, he would die. So the reverse is true. If you don't eat of the tree, you'll live. How long he had to be obedient to that, we're not told. We know that Christ came and lived for 33 years, was obedient, earned righteousness for us. So there was most likely a probationary period. Had Adam been obedient, he would have earned life. He would have earned righteousness. And everybody that came from Adam and Eve would have been born with a righteous nature, not a sin nature. We speculate a little bit there because Scripture doesn't um, flat out say that. But that seems to be the implication. Even when you look in Romans 5, talking about headship, Adam was the head of human race. His choices affect everybody. I think it's fair to say that had Adam made different choices, his choices would have affected mankind in the same way. It would have filtered down with righteous nature. We talked uh, about the covenant of grace. When does the covenant of grace first show up and appear in Scripture? Genesis 3.15. Okay, so as punishment is being issued for breaking the covenant of works, God institutes the covenant of grace, that he is going to send a descendant of Eve who will rescue mankind back to him. And then last week we saw how the covenant of grace plays out in different individual covenants. We looked at the Noahic covenant last week. God promises to withhold judgment until the end. We said that the need for this covenant was that mankind was becoming so wicked that God had to uh, God wanted to hinder that wickedness. God wanted to protect the human race from going down the path of wickedness that it was on. Um, and so in order to preserve mankind from this extreme level of wickedness, God judges the earth with a flood. He saves mankind through Noah and his family. But we said that this covenant ultimately points to a need for a greater Noah. Because the answer to our sin problems is not to just start over with a new man and a new woman, and maybe we'll get it better this time. It's not even, the answer is not even to start over with a Christian family because that's what we had in Noah and his family. So everybody else is taken out of the world. We start over with a Christian family and we still end up in corruption. This covenant points to something greater. It points to a need for a savior that a, a Christian man starting everything over on this earth would still produce the same type of wicked evil that we had before the flood. The Noahic covenant. But God continues to uphold this covenant. He made a promise that he will preserve creation until the end, that he will not destroy this earth. He will not destroy everybody again until Jesus comes back. And every time we see the, the rainbow in the sky, it's a reminder of the Noahic covenant. And it should be a reminder that the opportunity still exists for us to spread the gospel, to spread Christ's image to the ends of the earth. That commission was given to, uh, to Adam and Eve, be fruitful, multiply, spread out over the earth. That commission was given to Noah. Take your family, multiply, spread my image to the ends of the earth. It's the same commission given to us in Matthew 28. We're to multiply. We're to multiply through the sharing of the gospel, 
through spiritual birth and we're to spread the image to the ends of the earth. We talked about the Abrahamic covenant. God promises eternal life through faith. The need for this covenant was to establish a human line for the Messiah. God had made a promise to Eve. That promise was still intact, but now God gives us more special revelation to say it's going to, uh, this, this promised seed is going to come through the line of Abraham. Christ is, is the summary of this covenant in that he's seen as the true seed of Abraham in Galatians 3. We see that the promise was ultimately for uh, Christ to come through Abraham's line. We talked about the Mosaic covenant, what we would know as the Old Testament law. God preserves his people. The need was to establish an environment of holy living in the midst of corruption. We said that the the children of Israel had been corrupted by living in Egypt for as many years as they had. They were influenced by their religion, their way of worship. God needs to rescue them out of that mentality. And so he establishes the Old Testament law, the Old Testament sacrifices, and the Old Testament ceremonies to uh, call out a holy people that's different and separate from the pagan religions that they had grown up around. The Davidic covenant we talked about last week, God promises the ultimate ruler. The need was to establish a longing for the perfect sovereign. Christ comes as the virgin-born king, the only rightful ruler of God's people. Now, there's a lot of failure in the Old Testament covenants, a lot of failure to keep the Old, Old Testament covenants. It points us to a better covenant in Hebrews chapter 8. If you want to keep your Bibles open to the book of Hebrews, we're going to be in Hebrews uh, at various points today. Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8, if, as you're turning there, if I can get some people to look up some verses for me. Who wants to look up 2 Corinthians 3, 14 through 18? Okay, Andrea, 2 Corinthians 3, 14 through 18. John 16, 7 through 8. Jordan, John 16, 7 through 8. And then uh, Jeremiah 32, 40. Okay. All right, so Hebrews chapter 8, verse 7. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. Author of Hebrews is saying if, if there was no need for a new covenant, there wouldn't have been fault in the old covenants. But we see failure. We see um, a, a, lack of, uh, a lack of fulfillment in these covenants in the sense that they're pointing to Christ. And so there's certainly a need for what we find in the New Testament. Um, so what was lacking in the Old Testament covenants? What, what made them uh, not faultless? We first see a clear, full knowledge of Jesus Christ that was needed. There's not a clear, full knowledge of Christ in the Old Testament. We learn that from 2 Corinthians three fourteen through 18.
All right, so it talks about the blindness, the lack of understanding that existed in the Old Testament. Now, it's not that uh, people didn't have any knowledge of Christ. We're going to see that there was a knowledge of the future Messiah. But we also see as the, the Old Covenant is passing away and the New Covenant is coming upon the people of God, that clarification is having to, to take place from the apostles. That first comes from Jesus. You remember Jesus is on the road to Emmaus, and he's, he has to instruct the two, the two disciples, and it says that he taught them how the Old Testament points to him. That there was a lack of, of understanding, there was a lack of clarity about the role that Jesus plays in the New Testament and how he fulfills the Old Testament. This continues on in the early churches as there's a wrestling of the Jewish people with the, their understanding of the Old Testament and how to see Jesus as the fulfillment of that. And the author of, um, or Paul in 2 Corinthians is saying, look, until that veil is lifted, there's a reading of the Old Testament that doesn't see Jesus in it. And it's only when someone turns to Jesus through faith that the Old Testament really begins to make sense, that Christ is seen the, as the fulfillment of the Old Testament. So the new covenant's needed because it gives us a full knowledge of Christ. It's also uh, the source for giving us a, uh, a full giving of the Holy Spirit, John 16, 7 through 8. Okay, so Jesus says it's necessary for him to go away because there's a coming of the Holy Spirit in a way where he was not present previously. Now, we're not going to talk about the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament versus the New Testament this week, but we are going to talk about it when we begin to talk about spiritual gifts and how the Holy Spirit plays out in the New Testament. That's when we'll get into discussing well, what was he doing in the Old Testament. Today, we're just going to look at what is the same as far as the foundation of salvation. But there, there's the clear teaching that something changes in the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament, something that wasn't going on previously in the Old Testament. And again, we'll get into the details of that in the future, but just looking at the need for the New Covenant is where we're at today. Um, there was a need for a global blessing for all nations. Matthew 28, the commission is once again given that the gospel needs to go to the ends of the earth. We've talked about this before. Primarily, predominantly in the Old Testament, God's people is made up of Jewish people. That if you read through the Old Testament, you see how God is working things out with his people. It's predominantly with ethnic Jewish people. Now, we have accounts of, of Gentiles being brought into that, both on an individual basis and on a group basis. But predominantly, over the years of the Old Testament, it's about the Jewish people and their relationship to God. We see that drastically change in the, in the New Testament. We see a, a global outworking of God's plan in a way that didn't exist in the Old Testament. It's why the, the amillennialist view says that, that, the, that Satan has been bound and cannot deceive the nations any longer because he was deceiving them in the Old Testament. It was predominantly Jewish people that were working out their relationship with God. And we see that drastically change in the New Testament. Now, you don't have to agree that that's the, the implication of uh, the binding of Satan, but I think we can all agree that there is a change in how the nations are being dealt with in the New Testament, that we have Christians globally now in a way that did not exist in the Old Testament. All right? And then lastly, something that was lacking is a consistent perseverance by covenant people. Jeremiah thirty-two forty.
Okay, the implication in the new covenant is that we don't have people really falling away. Now, now we see that a lot more often than, than we would want to see it. But I think when we read passages like this, the expectation is in the new covenant, Holy Spirit is sealing you. The Holy Spirit lives inside of you. The expectation is that people don't walk away from the covenant like they did in the Old Testament. Remember, the Old Testament covenant understanding is that you were born into the covenant. Remember, that's why we talk, we're, we're going to talk about this more. But the reason that circumcision was given to children in the Old Covenant is because you were born into the covenant. And then you became um, an active part of the covenant when you professed faith in Yahweh. But you, would, you were considered part of the covenant people based on your birth. And so you had people that rejected it, that grew up and didn't accept it. So you had covenant people breaking the covenant. And God says, that's something different in the New Testament. In the New Covenant, they're not going to walk away from me. Which ought to increase our expectation and increase the responsibility that we feel to be faithful to God and not act like Old Testament people. That we don't act like Old Testament people that, that, that struggle with obeying the covenant and struggle to walk away from the covenant and, and are typically uh, tending to fall away from the covenant. The expectation in the New Testament is that if you're a believer, you persevere to the end. That if you're genuinely part of the covenant, you don't walk away. That's why we see those warnings in the book of Hebrews, hey, don't walk away from the covenant. But then it's typically followed up with, and I know you're not going to walk away from this. I expect better things from you because in the new covenant, you're not going to do this. If you're genuinely part of the covenant people, you don't walk away. That's what we see in the New Testament, this teaching of perseverance. True believer perseveres to the end. True covenant member in the New Testament perseveres to the end. Okay, so that's some things that um, were lacking in the old covenant that comes to, to light in the new covenant. All right, if you're taking notes, the new covenant, the parties involved are God and Christ's people. God and Christ's people. The condition is faith. The condition of the new covenant. It's not an unconditional covenant. It's not that we believe that salvation comes to every single individual. There's a condition to this covenant. To receive the benefits and the blessings of this covenant, it requires faith by the individual. The curse is eternal death. The blessing is salvation. Eternal death and salvation are the results of this covenant. The signs of the covenant are baptism and the Lord's Supper. These are the ordinances that Christ gives his church to participate in. We're going to look at some of the passages real quick in the Old Testament that point us to the promise of the new covenant. In Jeremiah chapter 31, Actually, let's go to Ezekiel 36. Verse 25. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. 
And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. We see some of the implications here in the, in the new covenant, a different type of living out obedience uh, that wasn't happening um, the way that, that God desired in the Old Testament. In Jeremiah 31, verse 31, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord. For they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. This would have huge implications for a people group that was was constantly being reminded of their sin in the sacrifice system. But there's the illusion here, the implication here is that there's coming a day when sin is going to be dealt with at the ultimate level and remembered no more by God. In Luke chapter 22, Luke chapter 22, verse 14 And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. He took a cup and when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it amongst yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. He took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes that has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another which of them it could be who was going to do this. In Hebrews chapter 8, again, these are all passages relating us to the new covenant, the new covenant both coming in the, in the future in the Old Testament and now in the New Testament being realized. In Hebrews chapter 8, verse 8, this is the, the application. This is how we know that what Jeremiah was talking about is the new covenant that we're under, that we experience, because the author of Hebrews gives us that divine hermeneutic, that divine application. Sometimes it's difficult to see and, and completely verify that this is what the Old Testament means, but when the author helps us out and tells us, that's a big advantage to us. We can authoritatively say, this is what Jeremiah 31 was talking about. Because in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 8, he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers. You can continue to read down through verse 12, and it's the exact same Uh, verses from Jeremiah 31. Here is the new covenant, the author of Hebrews is saying. And then we'll eventually see the new covenant come to its final application as described in Revelation 21.3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. 
That's the ultimate promise of the new covenant, an arrangement, a relationship where God is our God and we are his people for eternity. We see that now God is gathering his people in the form of the church. It's something that's that's already realized, but then it's also what theologians would say not yet realized in the sense that its full completion will happen in the future as Revelation 21 describes. So we see promises in the Old Testament about the new covenant. We see new, te- new covenant, or we see New Testament authors affirming that the new covenant has arrived. And it's important for us to see that Jesus is the yes to all previous covenants. In Second Corinthians, chapter one, verse twenty. It's not that that we make this application as teachers that Jesus fulfills the covenants. It's the it's the New Testament apostles that were teaching that everything that was hoped for in the Old Testament, every promise made in the Old Testament, is fulfilled in Jesus. Second Corinthians one twenty for all the promises of God find their yes in Him. That is why it is through Him that we utter our Amen to God for his glory. It's the son of God, Jesus Christ, described in verse 19, that is the yes to all the promises that God has made up to that point and then even into the future. They're all finding their fulfillment in Jesus. Galatians 3.13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it's written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. The Abrahamic covenant, what the Israelites hung their hat on as the ultimate promise from God is fulfilled in Jesus. He's the promised seed. He's the one that brings blessing to Abraham and his descendants by fulfilling the Mosaic covenant. He fulfills the law. He redeems us from our curse. In Galatians 4, 5, and 6. To redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Jesus, how does he fulfill these covenants? First of all, his genealogy shows him to be both the descendant of Abraham and David. Don't miss that. Why, why are the genealogies of Jesus so important? And why do they take up the space that they do in our in our books in Matthew and in Luke. Why are they there? Why are they important? And why shouldn't we just skip over them? Because they are his rightful claim to be the Messiah. The authors of Matthew and Luke give us those genealogies so that we can see that he's a descendant of Abraham, so that we can see he's a descendant of David, so that we can see he fulfills the Abrahamic covenant and the Davidic covenant, that he's the promised seed, he's the promised ruler. Those genealogies are long. They're difficult to say those names but they are absolutely crucial to our faith. Without them, there's doubt that exists. Uh, You know, I I believe Jesus is the Messiah, but I can't prove to you that he came from Abraham except that some of the authors tell us. No, they had valid genealogies. They had valid family trees that were contained in the temple to show that Jesus was the Messiah. Jesus could not have gone around and claimed Messiah had people believe him without somebody saying, let's check this guy out. Is he coming from Abraham? Is he coming from David? Believe me, the Pharisees would have produced 
family trees that showed otherwise, but they stay away from the family trees because they know it gave him rightful claim. Well, he, well, he can claim this because he does come from Abraham. He comes, does come from David. His genealogy shows it. In Luke chapter 1, verse 67, this is Zechariah talking based on his understanding that John, his son John, who would be John the Baptist, is coming to him. His father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies, from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers, to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. This is, this is Zechariah's response to the promise that John's coming to be the forerunner of the Messiah. And he relates it back to covenant. You can see that uh, without an understanding of covenant, we read this passage and we're like, why is he bringing up David? Why is he bringing up Abraham? Like, what, 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 how's that relevant to me? Zechariah is finding assurance in his future based on God's faithfulness to his past. He's saying, look, here it is, finally. God promised to send us a horn of salvation. He promised to raise us up a deliverer to save us from our enemies. He promised to bring blessing through Abraham. And here is the answer to those prophecies. Here is the answer to those promises. When we see covenant laid out in Scripture, it allows passages like this to really make sense at the depth that they're supposed to. He's not just spouting off Old Testament people for the sake of it. He has an understanding of covenant. He has an understanding that Jesus is the anticipated fulfillment of all those covenants. His temptation in the wilderness shows him to be the better Adam. Talking about why is Jesus the yes to these covenants, he's tempted in the wilderness. And his temptation is very similar to Adam and Eve's temptation, except that he's at more of a disadvantage than Adam and Eve. Think about it. Adam and Eve are in the comforts of the garden with food available to them at their full strength. Jesus has been fasting. He's tired. He's weak. He's in a wilderness with no food around him. Satan's temptation comes, and it comes in the same type of form that it came to Adam and Eve. Doubt God's goodness. Doubt God's sovereignty. He's attacked with those same type of temptations, and yet he finds victory over Satan and his temptations in a way that Adam never did. He shows himself to be the better Adam through the temptation in the wilderness. And then Paul demonstrates it for us in Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5 verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgressions of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. 
For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. He's the better Adam. His work is better. His work extends to all those who exercise faith. Now, I can't prove it from Scripture, but I venture to say that when all is said and done, that Christ's work will influence more than Adam's, meaning that I believe heaven will be more populated than hell for eternity. There will be more uh, more of those that have been radically saved, radically changed by the work of the last Adam than those who are condemned because of the work of the first Adam. I believe heaven's going to be full, full from every nation, every tribe and tongue, and it will outnumber those in hell because he's the better Adam. His work is better. Grace abounds more than sin. We see him fulfill what Adam could not fulfill. 1 Corinthians 15 You guys are thinking, well, let me think, is it really going to be more in heaven or hell? Well, if we believe babies are going to be there, then you, you, you count them in there, and I think we're overwhelmingly outnumbering those that are in hell based on those that have been aborted, based on those that have died in the womb, both the, uh, counting those that, that died before really coming to a full knowledge of the gospel and a full knowledge of their sin. I believe that God's grace abounds, and I believe when we're in heaven, the victory will be clear. Remember, it was communicated to Satan, you think you've won. You think you've won. You think you've stolen man from me, but I'm sending someone who will redeem man back to me. It only makes sense to me that more of us are there in heaven than there are in hell. In 1 Corinthians 15, 21, For as by man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. He's the better Adam. His victories show him to be the better descendant of David. He's the better descendant of David. 1 Corinthians 15. We're seeing how Jesus is the fulfillment of all these Old Testament covenants. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those... Actually, sorry. Eh... For as by man came death, by man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then it is coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God. After destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will, be, will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. He's the better king. He defeats his enemies. Everything comes under subjection of him, more so than any descendant of David ever could think about. 
even more so than David, more so than Solomon, who brought peace to the land. There were still enemies that were unconquered. Christ conquers all of his enemies, brings everything in creation to subjection to him. We see that in Philippians, where every knee bow, every tongue confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord. He's the better king that was promised as a descendant of David. And then in Acts 13, verifying once again that Christ is what all the Old Testament covenants point to, that he is necessary for our salvation. Acts 13, 38 and 39. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Christ saves us from something that the Old Testament never could save us from. I want to use that to, to kind of lead into what we're going to wrap up with today, and that's how salvation works the same in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Old Covenant versus New Covenant, there are some things that are different, and we'll see the differences in the coming weeks, but the thing that remains the same is how salvation works. Salvation has always been and always will be based on God's grace to provide righteousness through Christ to those who repent and put their faith in him. It's, it's always been that way. Salvation always comes based on God's righteous provision to those who put their faith and trust in him through repentance. Now, the only exception would be um, the covenant of works where uh, Adam had the opportunity to obey and chose not to. But what we see, even in the Old Testament, is that only God can save. It's not through any works or effort on our own that we can be saved. In Isaiah 43, 11, I, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. I declared and saved and proclaimed when there was no strange God among you, and you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, I am God. Sometimes people mistakenly think that there was a possibility of, of Israel earning their salvation through obedience, and that was never the case. That was never the plan. God communicates in the Old Testament. I'm the only one that can save. There is no Savior among you. There is no possibility of you being your own Savior. You're guilty. You're sinful. You cannot save yourself through good works. Salvation was never based on works after the covenant of works. No one's good enough. Psalm 14, verses 1 through 3. It's important for us to, to really let this resonate with inside of us um, because we've talked about this before with some of you, and, and, and I would venture to say that it doesn't always stick, that if I were to ask you today how, to, how people in the Old Testament saved, but there's still some cloudiness at times. And it's important to really see how this works out because it gives you assurance for your own salvation here today, knowing that this has always been the plan. That there's, there should be no confusion about how we're saved. It's been the same way from day one. This is how God saves his people. In Psalm 14, 1 through 3, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Where does that passage get echoed in the New Testament? Does anybody know? It's in Romans. 
Well, yeah, it, 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 in a more detailed description, it's Romans 3, where it talks about how there's none that does good, none that is righteous. Okay, so we see it in the Old Testament, we see it in the New Testament. Um, some other passages that, that echo this that we don't have time to look at, Ecclesiastes 7.20, uh, Isaiah 64.6. Contrary to other religions, God justifies the ungodly. So salvation's never been based on works. In fact, that's, that's the main thrust of other religions, God rewards you. You earn your salvation by being good boys and girls. Contrary to what every other religion says, God justifies the ungodly. In Galatians 2.16. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. We're told in Scripture that Christ dies for us, not because we're worthy of being died for, but because uh, he, he, in his love, he dies for us while we are still sinners. It's while we are ungodly that the plan of redemption is put in place. Same way with Adam and Eve. While they are being disobedient to the covenant of works, while they are deserving death, he implements the covenant of grace and says, I'm going to send somebody to save you guys. I mean, at their worst of worst, we've rebelled. We are naked before you. God says, I'm going to save y'all. Clearly, you don't deserve it. Clearly, you've broken my commands. Clearly, you have not earned this, but I'm going to save you. That's contrary to every other world religion out there. It's contrary to what Mormons say and Jehovah's Witnesses say when they knock on your doors, that God rewards your obedience, that he, he rewards it with salvation. It's contrary to the gospel. It's the gospel that Paul says, if somebody shows up at your door and says something contrary to the gospel, they're cursed for it. They are preaching a false gospel, preaching a false gospel. It's never been based on works. God graciously chooses to save us despite our sin. In Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, we see that picture. This applies directly to Old Testament saints, Abraham being the prime example. This isn't just a teaching in the New Testament. It's a teaching in the Old Testament about Abraham. Galatians 3, 15 through 18 to give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say into offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, to your offspring, which is Christ. This is what I mean. The law which came a 430 years afterwards does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Paul is showing the Israelites, man, your champion, your, your champion Old Testament guy was saved before the law was given in written form to Moses. He says if, if, if God is changing his way of salvation, it annuls the promise that was given to Abraham, your guy. And yet we, we, and yet all the Israelites would say, well, Abraham's definitely saved. Abraham's definitely justified. Paul's saying exactly because it does not have anything to do with the law. The law does not save because these guys were, were wanting to rely on the Old Testament law to save them. That if they kept the law, they would be saved. And Paul's saying, look, you can't. Nobody's saved by the law, including Abraham who didn't have the law like you do. And yet he's justified, as Scripture tells us. So salvation never based on works. It's never based on other sacrifices. 
Some people mistakenly think that the Israelites were saved because they offered Old Testament sacrifices, and that too is not the case. Sacrifices couldn't offer righteousness or forgiveness. Hebrews chapter 10. For since the law was but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin. But in these sacrifices, they're a reminder of sins every year. Sacrifices couldn't offer righteousness. They couldn't offer ultimate forgiveness. They only increased their awareness of sin. Verse 3, but in these sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins every year, for it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. All it does is remind them that we're going to have to be back here again, that I will not be perfect. I'm going to have to keep bringing animals to make provision for my sin. A greater sacrifice was always needed. Verse 5, consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you've not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you've taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, you have neither desired or taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are according to the law. Then he added, behold, I've come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Christ comes to put an end to animal sacrifices. He's the fulfillment of what they pointed to in verse 12. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemy should be made a footstool for his feet. For a single offering, he is perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. He's the ultimate sacrifice that the Old Testament saints needed just like we need. Salvation's always been based on the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. Revelation 13.8 talks about him being slain before the foundation of the world. What we see from Scripture is that Old Testament saints were saved on credit, making the sacrifice of Jesus retroactive. We see this in Romans 3 and Hebrews 9. And just to kind of explain it to you, Old Testament saints were, were, were saved based on God's knowledge that Christ was coming. And so in a sense, they enjoyed salvation in the same way that you can enjoy an item that you put on your credit card. You scan the credit card, you anticipate paying for it in the future, but you enjoy all the benefits of that purchase in the here and now, even though payment has not been made. That's the picture we see for Old Testament saints. They were given righteousness. They were given salvation based on the future payment of Christ. Even though they didn't maybe fully understand all the details of that, God did. Based on the covenant of redemption. We're going to do this, the Trinity said. We're going to do this in the future. And so they're, they're, they're awarded salvation based on the future payment of Christ, based on the future work of Christ. They enjoy it in the Old Testament. It's not that they were condemned in their sin until Christ came. They enjoy the provisions of that previous to the payment, just like you can enjoy a purchase on credit and then the payment's made in the future. Romans 3 says that he passed over their sins so that he could be the justifier when he poured out his wrath on Christ. So they're paid retroactive. They enjoy that salvation. 
Salvation was enjoyed based on the promised work of Christ. The blood of Christ is crucial for salvation. It saves us in the New Testament. It saves us in the Old Testament. Salvation is always applied through repentance and faith in God's promises. God always demands repentance for sin, uh, from sin for salvation. We see this in Psalm 51. We see it in Acts chapter 3. It's consistent. Repentance is necessary for salvation in the old and in the new. God always demands faith and belief for salvation. We see this in Genesis 15 and in Acts 16. God always produces obedience as fruit of salvation. So salvation works the same in the old and in the new. The conclusion then is that God specifically revealed his redemptive plan from the very beginning. There was the promise, Genesis 3, the Savior's coming. Over the course of redemptive history, man's knowledge and understanding of that plan has steadily increased. So day by day, we learn more about God's plan through the Old Testament into the New Testament. While Old Testament saints did not fully understand God's plan, and we see that in places like Mark 9 where there was still some confusion, they did have an understanding of the coming Redeemer. God's pattern has always been for mankind to place their faith and trust in him and his redemptive plan. Old Testament saints therefore believed what God had revealed to them while anticipating a coming Messiah. Old Testament saints believed God's revelation to them through a personal relationship and their faith was accounted for righteousness. And from God's perspective, it was always based upon the shed blood of Jesus Christ, though they might not have clearly understood that. They didn't earn their salvation through works or sacrifices, but they did show their faith was genuine by living it out in obedience. Let's look at two examples real quick and we'll close. Two examples of how Old Testament salvation works the same as it did in New Testament. And essentially we're saying that salvation has always been the same. We put our faith and trust in what God has revealed to us based on his plan to redeem. We obviously have a fuller knowledge of his plan to redeem in the New Testament. We look back to Christ. They, in a sense, were looking forward to Christ, but looking through it with a veil, not fully understanding how this was going to play out, but trusting that a coming Messiah was was to come and save them from their sin. That was the plan. So it's always been about repentance of sin, putting their faith and trust in what God was revealing to them. Two examples that are relied on in the New Testament, Abraham and Rahab. Abraham, Genesis 15, 6. He believed the Lord and it counted to him as righteousness. Not that he did anything. It's not that he earned anything. He believed God and it was counted as righteousness to Abraham. God credits righteousness to Abraham's account because he's believing and trusting in what God has revealed to him. In Romans chapter 4, verse 9, Paul expounds upon this for his Jewish people to understand this. Romans chapter 4, verse 9. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe 
without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well, and to make him the father of the circumcised, who were not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. The argument was that the Gentiles needed to be circumcised, that they couldn't be saved without this Old Testament circumcision. And the apostles continually teaching the New Testament, Abraham was counted righteous before he was circumcised. That's not by accident. God could have easily written that in Scripture that Abraham's righteous uh, after his circumcision. He could have written that. But God specifically chooses to put that in writing for us before his circumcision. Why? Paul says so that he can be the father of the circumcised and the uncircumcised. He's showing that salvation comes by faith, not by external works. And then he goes on to say that the external outward expression of circumcision was only showing a picture of what had already happened in Abraham. Abraham is justified because he believes God's promise to him, evidenced by his willingness to leave his country and sacrifice his only son. So, does Abraham do works after he's, after he's counted righteous? Absolutely. James says without him, his faith's not real. He doesn't earn his salvation, though, through his works. He demonstrates that he's trusting God by the way that he lives. And it's a subtle difference, but it's a huge difference in what it means. The motivation for our works is not to earn salvation. It's to express that we are trusting in him for our salvation. Abraham, I'm, I'm believing in you. I'm leaving my country. He obviously believes before he leaves. He believes God, believes this covenant that he's wanting to make with him, leaves his country. We know in the New Testament, he believed that God, could, that he believed that God was going to raise Isaac from the dead. So he's willing to sacrifice his son because he says, you know what? God made a covenant with me. He made a covenant with Isaac to be my promised son. He can't kill him here. New Testament says that Abraham believed if necessary, he would raise him from the dead. It's all about his faith being lived out in his works. Same with Rahab. James chapter two, verse, or yeah, James chapter two, verse 25 and 26. the relationship of faith and works. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers, sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Here, James is highlighting her works, what she did to demonstrate her faith. Well, how do we know she had faith prior to this? We know by her conversation in Joshua chapter two with the spies. When she finds out about these spies, she brings them into her house. She has a conversation with them. She says, I know who you are. I know who your God is. She uses his proper name. She says, I know that he is in control of everything and that you guys are going to wipe out this land. Save me. Please, please beg your God to save me. She hit them and she rescued them because she was already previously believing in their God. Her belief came first, and then her works came. She demonstrates her faith by the fact that she saves these spies. But her motivation for bringing them into her house was that she was already believing in, in Yahweh and wanting salvation from Yahweh. She believed God is the creator of the heavens and the earth, general revelation that we all have, and that he's coming to judge her city for sin. 
which was a special revelation. And the only hope she has is to throw herself upon his mercy in repentance and faith. The conclusion, who has salvation, or who was salvation applied to in the Old Testament and the New Testament? It's always been applied to those who place their faith and trust in what God has said. We just have a greater advantage today that should lead to a greater response of faithfulness. Matthew 13, 1 Peter 1, 2 Corinthians 5, all highlight the fact that we as believers in the New Testament have a greater knowledge of God's redemptive plan, which gives us greater responsibility. Because Jesus forgives and forgets our sin, I want to give you four things that we should do based on Hebrews 10. Hebrews 10, 22 says, Let us draw near... Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promises faithful. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. We have a responsibility to draw near to Christ in boldness and confidence, knowing that our salvation is secure on the work of Christ and not our own good works. We're to hold fast to our salvation. We're to encourage each other in our walks, and we're to enjoy fellowship with other believers. These are all implications of the new covenant. What we've seen today is that the old covenant, it's different than the new covenant, but it's the same at its core element, that salvation is the same. It's always based on faith trust and repentance it's always based on that both in the old and in the new we're given old testament examples in the new testament of how salvation works paul doesn't highlight how salvation works by referencing peter who would have been very easy to do here's what salvation looked like in the life of peter here's a new testament example paul says you know what? we don't need new testament examples we got plenty of those you guys are understanding how it's working right now but let me show you how it was working the same way in the old testament I don't think it's a coincidence that he picks a Jew and a Gentile to show it. Abraham, a Jew, he was saved before he was circumcised. Rahab, a, a, uh, a prostitute from Jericho who has no, no right to claim to be a part of God's covenant people. He saves both of them the same way. Saves both of them based on their faith and trust. And he produces works in both of their life as a sign of that true salvation. It's the same for us in the New Testament. We've put our faith and trust in Christ. We should expect that works are going to be produced in our life as a sign of that true salvation. We're going to close today by celebrating the Lord's Supper once again, highlighting the fact that the new covenant has come, that salvation has come, that a fuller knowledge of Christ has come, that the Holy Spirit has come in a greater way to us. The new covenant is is better than the old covenant. If that wasn't the case, we wouldn't have a need for the new covenant. The yes to everything in the Old Testament is Christ. And we have the opportunity to celebrate that together today. We don't believe that this uh, adds to our salvation or that it earns our salvation. We simply partake of the Lord's Supper to celebrate as a reminder of what Christ has done for us and what we've put our faith and trust in. His perfect life represented in the bread. His complete sacrificial death that takes care of God's wrath 
uh, towards us through his shed blood on the cross. I invite you to celebrate that with us together today as we pray. Father, I'm grateful for the new covenant. I'm grateful that you have consistently worked the same way with man since you instituted the covenant of grace in the, in the garden. God, I'm thankful for your grace and mercy this morning that despite the fact that Adam and Eve deserve death, despite the fact that we all have earned death based on our actions, that you choose to justify ungodly people. God, I'm thankful that our religion is different and that it's different from every other religion because it's true. That we can never earn a right relationship with you through our effort. That we can't get back into the garden eating the tree of life because we deserve it. God, I'm thankful that through the descendants of Adam, you've been rescuing people through the work of Christ. That Old Testament saints were saved by you because you, as the Trinity, recognized that Christ was coming. And that on credit, you were able to save those who expressed faith and trust. And God, I'm thankful that in the New Testament, you are continuing to rescue us as a descendant of Adam and you're grafting us into the family of Christ. God, I'm thankful for the work of faith that you have performed in our hearts. God, I'm praying that that would continue to get lived out every single day as we are constantly turning from sin and turning to you in righteousness. God, we celebrate this morning what Christ has accomplished for us. We celebrate that we have a fuller knowledge of that, that the veil has been lifted that we can see that Christ has come to earn salvation, a Christ that was promised in the Old Testament to do such a thing. Father, I pray that you would be honored this morning as we celebrate this together, as we anxiously await Jesus' return. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.